Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, assault, substance abuse, and suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Alma Rattenbury tossed and turned on the hard mattress. The thin sheet that prison authorities had provided wasn't enough to stop her from shivering. But even so, physical discomfort was the least of her problems. Her trial was set to begin the following morning, and the death penalty was on the table. Alma couldn't help but imagine the worst-case scenario. She could practically feel the executioner's rope tightening around her neck. Lying there in her cold prison cell, spiraling over the possibility of her own death, Alma wanted nothing more than to swallow one of Dr. O'Donnell's morphine pills. The little blue capsules would quell her anxiety for a few hours at least. But there were no drugs at Holloway Prison. For the first time in years, Alma had to face her troubles sober. She stayed up all night, staring at the ceiling. It felt like a lifetime passed before the black night dissolved into yellow morning. Alma rose, splashed her face with water, and put on the nicest clothes she had. Outside, a police car idled, waiting to drive her to the Old Bailey Courthouse. She walked to the vehicle with as much dignity as she could muster. When the car pulled up outside the Old Bailey, Alma was shocked to see the crowd gathered outside. She knew that she and George had caused quite a stir, but this was unlike anything she could have imagined. People had been waiting in line outside overnight so they could get seats in the public gallery. Alma stepped out of the car, unsteady on her feet. Police escorted her past the mob, but there was no hiding from the onlookers' judgment. They hurled insults at her, calling her a killer, an adulterer, a woman who was soon to be condemned. Alma swallowed hard and quickened her pace, hoping against hope that the truth would come out and that she would be set free. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our second episode on the 1935 murder of Francis Rattenbury. Last week, we covered how Alma found her 67-year-old husband fatally injured in their Bournemouth, England home. She and her lover, 18-year-old George Stoner, were soon arrested in connection with the crime. This week, we'll discover the secrets that were revealed at Alma and George's highly publicized trial and reconstruct the last night of Francis Rattenbury's life. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. The trial of 42-year-old Alma Rattenbury and 18-year-old George Stoner began on May 27, 1935. It had been nearly two months since Francis Rattenbury, a highly regarded architect, was found unconscious in the drawing room of his Bournemouth home. Francis ultimately died of hemorrhaging and a fractured skull, though it remained unclear whether Alma or George wielded the mallet that killed him. In the weeks leading up to the trial, British media outlets speculated endlessly about the crime. It became common knowledge that Alma and George had been engaged in some kind of affair. The bizarre love triangle gripped imaginations across England. Some rumors were fairly predictable, like the idea that George killed Francis out of jealousy. Other gossip was a bit more creative. When word got out that various prescription drugs were found in the Rattenbury's home, some people said George was a cocaine addict who murdered Francis in the midst of a stimulant-fueled frenzy. However, the most popular narrative placed almost all the blame on Alma's shoulders. It was widely believed that she seduced George, serving as the catalyst for the teenager's moral corruption. People said she convinced him to murder Francis so she could be free of her unhappy marriage. This story, more than any other, burrowed its way into British consciousness. People saw George as a misguided child, while Alma was roundly demonized as an adulterer. The crowd who attended the trial was hungry for blood. They came to watch Alma be convicted. On that morning, Alma could sense the malice radiating from the audience. She kept her head down until George entered the room. The moment she saw him, she stared at him with wide, pleading eyes. He refused to let his gaze wander in her direction. Alma and George were seated separately, and after her initial attempt at eye contact, Alma just stared down at her hands. People in attendance must have felt it was difficult to believe that the two defendants were lovers. They acted like they didn't even know each other at all. When everyone was seated, a hush fell over the court. The clerk of the court stood and addressed the accused. Alma Rattenbury and George Stoner, you are accused of the murder of Francis Rattenbury. How do you plead? 
<clears throat> not guilty. I am not guilty, sir. This came as an odd twist. Prior to their arrests, both Alma and George had confessed to the crime. Now they were both claiming innocence. Alma's counsel, a man named Terence O'Connor, leaned over to George's lawyer, Joshua Caswell. Your boy is going down. His lover is going to testify against him. Really? The truth is going to come out, Mr. Caswell. I suppose we'll see about that. Tensions were high between Alma and George's attorneys. Alma's team planned to argue her innocence by giving evidence against the chauffeur, but George's plan of action was less clear. To begin the proceedings, the prosecution laid out their case. The lead prosecutor, Reginald Croom Johnson, argued that Alma and George co-conspired to kill Francis because he stood in the way of their affair. Mr. Croom Johnson recounted the Bournemouth Police Department's findings. He told the jury about Alma's heavy drinking, showed the receipts that proved her romance with George, and detailed the circumstances under which detectives retrieved the murder weapon. This was a central aspect of the prosecution's case. Alma couldn't provide police with the mallet even though it was hidden on her property. This made investigators think that, regardless of her confessions, she didn't really know where the weapon was. Secondly, investigators discovered that the mallet had been borrowed from George's grandparents. For this reason, authorities believed that George was the actual killer. But this didn't absolve Alma. The prosecution argued that she had effectively brainwashed George into killing Francis for her. George's grandparents, among others, testified that his entire personality changed after he started working for the Rattenburys. Caswell told the jury that George had been a kind, respectable boy until he met Alma, who turned him into a jealous and rageful murderer. Following this logic, Alma and George shared responsibility for the crime. Unfortunately for the prosecution, one pivotal witness would poke holes in this theory— 26-year-old Irene Riggs, the Rattenberry's live-in maid, took the stand. Alma's lawyers were the first to question her. Miss Riggs, how would you characterize Mr. Stoner? He was a bit unpredictable. He could fly off the handle if you know what I mean. Did you ever feel afraid of him? Yes. He carried a knife and Alma told me he threatened her with a gun. Did you note anything of interest before or after Mr. Rattenbury was found injured? During the early morning on March 25th, it was a very long night, you see, Alma whispered to me uh, something along the lines of, tell Stoner he must give me the mallet. Of course I took this to mean that George had been the one hurt Francis. After the police took Alma away, George stopped me in the kitchen and said, I suppose you know who did it. And what did you say? I didn't know how to react. I think I might have shrugged and said something like... Well, I was too afraid to say how could I not know. I was very worried about uh, making him angry or provoking some kind of reaction. It wasn't until Tuesday that I finally asked him why he did it. What reasoning did he offer? He said that on the afternoon of the 24th he'd seen Alma and Francis making love during their afternoon tea. I suppose he became very jealous. Did that excuse make sense to you? 
No, not really. I don't want to be too improper, but I don't believe that Mr. and Mrs. Rattenbury had been together as husband and wife for a number of years. But that's what George told me anyway. Nearly all of this information, from George and Alma's strange comments to the fact that the Rattenburys rarely shared a marital bed, came as a surprise to the jury, the prosecution, and the police. Irene had never mentioned any of it before the trial. She'd been hiding pivotal details about the case. The facts Irene presented incriminated George, but his lawyers thought she had a hidden motive. Caswell stepped up to begin his cross-examination. Would you describe your relationship with Mrs. Raddenbury as professional? I don't think so. I lived with her, so over time we became very friendly. You went on trips with her, did you not? On occasion. Just the two of you, am I right? That is, until George Stoner came along. When the three of you went on trips, were you aware that your employer and your co-worker were sleeping together? Yes, but they didn't share a bed at the hotels. You were sleeping in Mrs. Rattenbury's bed then? Um, no, I was in a connected room. Did you approve of the relationship between Mrs. Rattenbury and Mr. Stoner? It wasn't my place to approve or disapprove. It just hurt me. One would expect it might, especially if you and Alma had been, shall we say, close. I'm not sure what you're implying, Mr. Caswell. You used to call Mrs. Rattenbury Jack, did you not? Never. So you had no special names for her? Well, I might have called her Darling. Whispers erupted across the courtroom. Caswell's implication was clear. Suddenly, the jury had to wonder if Alma had been flirting with not just one, but two of her servants. If Alma and Irene had been conducting an affair of their own, the maid had a serious conflict of interest. But there was little time to explore the matter further. The court adjourned, having hardly scratched the surface of the case. Too many questions remained including if the drugs found in the Rattenbury's home had some bearing on the crime. Answers wouldn't come until the second and third days of the trial, when Dr. O'Donnell would take the stand, followed by Alma Rattenbury herself. Up next, Dr. O'Donnell discusses Alma's addictions, then Alma tells her side of the story. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast and premieres Monday, May 3rd. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
Now, back to the story. The first day of 42-year-old Alma Rattenbury and 18-year-old George Stoner's murder trial brought a few major revelations. According to the Rattenburys' live-in maid, 26-year-old Irene Riggs, George was responsible for Francis's death. However, George's defense team questioned Irene's credibility by suggesting that she was in an intimate relationship with Alma and jealous of George. The second day of the trial began on May 28, 1935. Alma arrived smartly dressed, and even as the prosecution testified against her, she kept her jaw set and her posture dignified. George, on the other hand, was in much worse shape. Dark under-eye bags hinted at a night spent lying awake. He sat with his chin leaning on his open palm and his eyes half-closed. The day's most pivotal testimony came from Dr. O'Donnell, the Rattenbury's family physician and the first person to examine Francis on March 24th. The doctor was first questioned by the prosecution. Dr. O'Donnell, can you describe your experience on the night in question? Francis was in very bad shape. Alma was hysterical with worry. But you didn't call the police right away? No. Why not? I thought if I called a surgeon, he might be able to save Francis's life. Why not call the police and a surgeon? I wasn't thinking very clearly. Were you aware of the relationship between Mrs. Rattenbury and Mr. Stoner? And before you reply, I might remind you that you are speaking under oath. Yes, I suspected it. The prosecutor raised a fair point. The doctor saw that Francis was dying and knew George had a motive for murder, but he kept law enforcement out of the picture, possibly because he had a secret too. Both Mrs. Rattenbury and Mr. Stoner have issued full confessions prior to the trial. Why ought the jury believe either of them is innocent? Alma was incredibly drunk on the night in question, and I had given her some morphine to calm down. Was she that way often? She, uh, had a tendency to drink more than was good for her, yes. I'd advised her to turn away the bottle completely, but clearly she hadn't. So you were interested in her habits? I gave her health advice. Right. What do you know of her drug habit? I'm sorry? A number of drugs, sedatives, antidepressants, sleeping pills, and the like, were found in Mrs. Rattenbury's bathroom cabinet. Did you supply her with these substances? I wrote her a number of prescriptions over the years. Would you describe Mrs. Rattenbury as a drug addict? No, she was averse to any kind of dope. According to Sean O'Connor's book, The Fatal Passion of Alma Rattenbury, Dr. O'Donnell said Alma wasn't dependent on any drugs. This, however, seemed inconsistent with her behavior and with the testimony of other witnesses. Even Irene, who supposedly had a conflict of interest, said Alma was an alcoholic and described behavior that was erratic. Highs of increased activity and excitement, followed by long stretches of tiredness and irritability. It's possible that this behavior was the result of an addiction to cocaine. Perhaps Dr. O'Donnell's attempts to obscure Alma's addiction meant that he had been supplying her with drugs himself. 
Cocaine became a restricted substance around the time of World War I, but was still legal for certain doctors to prescribe by 1920. Before then, the substance was touted as a cure-all and mixed into everything from wine to cough drops. By 1935, it probably wouldn't have been very difficult for a physician to get their hands on the drug. This would explain O'Donnell's evasion at the trial and his hesitancy to call the police. If Alma had been under the influence of anything other than alcohol, he could have gotten in legal trouble himself. Either way, the testimony didn't prove anybody's innocence. It only left the jury confused. People left the courtroom unsure what to believe. They hoped things would come into focus the next day, when Alma Rattenbury would finally take the stand. On May 29, 1935, the atmosphere inside the Old Bailey Court was one of tense expectation. Every person in the crowd had a notion of who Alma was, and most expected her to stomp up to the podium half-drunk and speak callously of her husband's death. Alma had to fight not only against the prosecution's case, but also against the image of herself that had taken hold in so many people's minds. According to a description of the trial by Tennyson Jesse, who was there to report on it, There was probably no one in England and no one in the court when the trial opened save Mrs. Rattenbury, her solicitor and counsel, and Miss Riggs, who did not think that Mrs. Rattenbury was guilty of the crime of murder. Knowing full well that nearly every person in the room wanted to watch her hang, Alma stepped up to the witness box. She was stone-cold sober, and she spoke more tenderly than anyone anticipated. Mrs. Rattenbury, did you and your husband share a bed? No. We occupied separate rooms. Were you fond of your husband? Not particularly. He was more of a companion than anything. And were you fond of this boy, Mr. Stoner? I was in love with him. Alma seized the opportunity to admit her true feelings. She and Francis were more like roommates than a married couple. George was the real object of her affection. If nothing else, the admission helped humanize her to the jury. With the state of her marriage in mind, Alma's drinking and possible drug use made more sense. She lived in an unhappy home. Her husband was depressed, and so was she. Alma had only just passed 40, but living with Francis made her feel like her life was already over. She needed an escape. That's what the substances were for. Moreover, Francis was nearing 70, and he probably couldn't give Alma what she wanted romantically. The jury still saw her affair as immoral, but they no longer believed it had been malicious. Rather, Alma seemed like a sad woman who looked for love in all the wrong places. The lead prosecutor, Mr. Croom Johnson, saw the jury soften. Still seeking a dual conviction, he doubled down and pressed Alma on the details of her and George's affair, specifically questioning her as to when and where they slept together. Alma admitted they had sex in her bed, often with her six-year-old son sleeping on the other side of the room. This shocked the prosecution and the jury. It was certainly a distasteful thought, but it did help Alma in one way. It made the jury realize that she was being completely honest. 
She wouldn't stray from the truth, even if it meant owning up to something that might make her look like a bad mother. Thus, Alma's statements were taken with great weight. She denied having any hand in or prior knowledge of the crime, and the jury believed her. The truth of the crime began to crystallize, and things looked bad for the 18-year-old chauffeur. Even so, Alma refused to point the finger directly at George. She cleared up the circumstances of their affair, but she insisted that her memory of March 24th was hazy. Francis knew I had another lover. He'd practically encouraged it. He was getting very old, you see, and, well, he couldn't... I take your meaning. He said once that he wanted me to seek out a partner, if that would make me happy. So I did. And he knew. But I don't think he knew it was George, specifically. In any case, Francis wasn't a jealous man. But Mr. Stoner was? It's possible. What do you mean? Was he or was he not? I can't remember. Did Mr. Stoner give you any indication that he'd committed a crime on the night of March 24th? It's all very foggy. I'd had too much to drink. Was Mr. Stoner a violent man? It's really very hard to say. It was obvious that Alma was trying to avoid laying blame on George. She loved him too much to call him a killer outright. The one thing she admitted was that she only confessed to the crime in March to protect George. She thought if Francis lived, she might be able to sweep everything under the rug and keep her lover out of trouble. By the time Alma stepped out of the witness box, every person in the room was convinced of her innocence. George looked stricken. Apparently, he'd expected Alma to give up her own life in order to save him. George didn't testify. There was nothing to say. His lawyer, Mr. Caswell, shifted his arguments, appealing to his client's youth. He spoke of George's humble upbringing, especially making the case that the chauffeur was a victim of his circumstances. The jury didn't buy it. Caswell went back to George's supposed motive. If Alma and Francis hadn't had sex in years, the chauffeur couldn't have seen them sleeping together during afternoon tea. Either George had imagined it in a drug-induced hallucination, or someone had to be lying about what really set George off. In any case, Caswell argued that George was either not guilty by reason of insanity from drug use and jealousy, or at worst, George was only guilty of manslaughter. It was agreed that the most likely explanation for George's jealousy was the Rattenburys' upcoming trip. They were supposed to make their way to Bridport, a small town about 40 miles east of Bournemouth, to meet with a man who spoke of funding one of Francis's architectural projects. A lot rode on the meeting. Francis hadn't worked in some time, and the Rattenburys' finances were becoming strained. One theory suggests that George overheard Francis telling his wife to do whatever was necessary to gain the man's favor, essentially implying that Alma should sleep with a potential donor. This plan and its disregard for Alma's autonomy might have driven George over the edge. Although this theory is possible, it's difficult to prove. Another possibility is that George simply couldn't stand the idea of Alma and Francis spending a weekend alone together. 
Maybe his jealousy overtook him, and in a flash of rage, he did something he could never take back. On Friday, May 31st, 1935, after five days of testimony and just 48 minutes of deliberation, the jury returned their verdict. Alma Rattenbury was acquitted. George Stoner was found guilty and sentenced to death. Upon hearing the decision, Alma staggered forward and reached across the aisle towards her lover. She felt as if her own heart would stop beating if George's did. She couldn't stomach the thought of living in a world without him. But George wouldn't even meet her eyes. He kept his gaze fixed on the floor as he was escorted out of the courtroom. Alma was beyond devastated. She was a nervous wreck. Authorities were so concerned about her mental state that they refused to release her. Instead, they booked her into a private hospital where she could be monitored by professionals. At the home, Alma could think of nothing but George. He was a grown man, but he became like a child in her mind. She couldn't stop imagining him small, cold, and afraid, the remaining hours of his life ticking away. Over the next three days, Alma grew increasingly despondent. Then, on June 4, 1935, she woke looking more tranquil than usual. She managed to get through breakfast without crying. After the meal, she asked her nurse if she might be able to leave for the day to do some shopping. Thinking an afternoon out would do her patient good, the nurse agreed. She watched as Alma grabbed her purse, put on a light sweater, and headed out. Alma waved goodbye to her caretaker before the door slammed shut. Outside the sky was England's typical gray. Alma felt a sudden pang of desperation. She missed Canada. She missed her old life. But there was no going back. She'd left the hospital that day with no intention of returning. She couldn't live in a world without George and bear the guilt of all that had happened. So she decided not to live at all. Coming up, a major twist changes one person's fate. And now, back to our story. On May 31, 1935, 42-year-old Alma Rattenbury was found not guilty of her 67-year-old husband's murder. Her lover, 18-year-old George Stoner, was ruled guilty and sentenced to death. After hearing the verdict, Alma's mental health deteriorated. She'd gone from having an established husband, a beautiful home, and a young lover to having nothing at all. Without Francis, she had no financial stability. Without George, she had no will to live. Alma ambled down the sidewalk. The rhythm of her footsteps lulled her, and she thought back to March 24th, the day that her entire life came unraveled. That Sunday afternoon had been one of constant strain. Francis was in a dark mood, flipping through a depressing book called Stay of Execution. Alma sat with him in her bedroom, and every so often he read a passage aloud. Now listen to this, Alma. The old men like to marry the young girls, and after a bit, it's hell for both. 
It's naturally annoying to a young girl to see her husband moldering while she still feels frisky. She wants a good deal more than he can give her, and then she generally goes somewhere else to make up the deficiency. What do you think about that? Oh, Francis, darling, please stop. It's really dishonorable for a husband to put his young wife through such a thing, I think. I admire an old man who can put himself out of his misery. I myself haven't the guts. Why don't we talk about something more cheerful? <laughs> well, you're looking forward to a weekend in Bridport, aren't you? I think my life hinges on it. What do you mean? If I can get some funding, I'll have a project. I'll have something to live for. What a beautiful thought that is. Alma didn't know how to deal with her husband's allusions to suicide. She kept trying to deflect it, to simply be cheerful, but the problem was real. Francis was depressed and their relationship wasn't working. It hadn't been for many years. The couple took tea alone, which George delivered to the room. According to some accounts of what happened at this time, Alma shut the doors. It's impossible to know exactly what happened during this early evening break. George claimed he saw Alma and Francis making love, but this seems very unlikely. As we mentioned before, another theory suggests George overheard Francis asking his wife to seduce his potential business partner in Bridport. This is what Alma claimed occurred. In any case, even if the doors were closed, news of the upcoming trip reached George and left him incensed. After tea, Alma went to Francis' bedroom to make a phone call. George burst inside, fuming and armed with a revolver. If you go on that trip, I swear I'll kill you. Oh, George, don't make a fool of yourself. I'll do it! No, you won't. Now please, I need to make a phone call. I don't want you closing doors like that. What do you and Francis need privacy for? George, honey, you don't need to be jealous, all right? It's just a weekend away. I'll be back before you even know I'm gone. Alma was right to discount George at that moment. It was later found that the revolver was just a toy. His threats seemed dramatic, even silly. Nobody who knew him, except maybe Irene, thought the chauffeur was capable of real harm. But George would prove them all wrong. Around 8.30 p.m. after he finished his work for the day, he stopped by his grandparents' house and asked to borrow their mallet. The request seemed innocuous enough, so George's relatives didn't think anything of it. The 18-year-old took the weapon and made his way back to Five Manor Road. He arrived outside around 9.30. From where he stood, George could see into the Rattenbury's drawing room, where Francis was now seated in an armchair. Framed by the large French windows, Alma gave Francis a quick kiss goodnight. This made George's blood boil. He stood on the street like a phantom, his grip tightening around the mallet's handle, waiting for Francis to fall asleep. It didn't take long for the old man to doze off. When he did, George climbed in through the windows, which had apparently been left open by accident. Moving silently, the chauffeur tiptoed behind the chair and raised the mallet over his employer's head. George brought the mallet down as hard as he could. 
he heard a sickening crack as Francis's skull fractured. He hit his employer two more times before dropping the weapon on the floor. George let his arms fall to his side. Even as he stood before Francis, who was by that point bleeding to death, all he could think about was the fact that he ought to change clothes. He walked upstairs and put on pajamas Alma had bought him in London a few days prior. George shuffled around his bedroom, his initial numbness slowly giving way to panic. The more time passed, the more he understood the gravity of the situation. It took him about 45 minutes to decide that he couldn't just leave Francis sitting there. He had to tell Alma what he'd done. Full of self-pity, George sulked into Alma's bedroom. He climbed into her bed without making a sound. Alma sensed that something was off. What's wrong, dear? I'm in trouble. What happened? I can't say. Oh, come now, George. You must tell me. I don't think you're going to Bridport. We've been over this, darling. I really don't mean to be callous, but you simply don't have a say in the matter. I hurt Francis. What? What do you mean? I hurt him. I'll go see him now. No, you shouldn't. It will upset you. What on earth did you do? Alma jumped out of bed and followed the sound of her husband's groans. She found him just as George had left him, bloodied, unconscious, and with his false teeth knocked halfway across the drawing room. Alma's mind started spinning. She had to figure out a way to save both her husband and her lover, but she could hardly think through her panic. She downed a glass of whiskey to calm her frazzled nerves and decided the best thing to do was act clueless. She yelled for Irene to come downstairs and help. Irene phoned Dr. O'Donnell and then, against Alma's protests, called for George. The 18-year-old made his way to the drawing room and feigned shock at Francis's condition. While Irene cleaned the architect's face and Alma stared into yet another glass of whiskey, George kicked the murder weapon underneath the couch. Later, he would hide it again outdoors. The following afternoon, George smugly approached Irene in the kitchen. I suppose you know who did it. Well... But George's hubris got the best of him. His outdoor hiding spot for the mallet wasn't very good. Detectives quickly found it. However, at that point, Alma had already been arrested and booked into Holloway Prison. The weapon implicated George and evidence of his and Alma's affair made the murder look like a conspiracy. In order to get acquitted, Alma had to tell the truth. Unfortunately, this meant George, the person she'd wanted to save all along, had to be convicted. Alma had hoped the jury would be merciful, but they sentenced her lover to death, and she left the courtroom unsure if she could carry on with her own life. On June 4, 1935, four days after the verdict, Alma left the hospital. She walked to a nearby store and bought a knife, then a few hours later boarded a train to Christchurch. From the train station, Alma made her way to the banks of the River Stour. 
just near where the train tracks crossed. She sat in the grass and wrote a series of notes. If I only thought it would help George, I'd stay on. But it has been pointed out to me too vividly that I cannot help him. And that is my death sentence. It must be easier to be hanged than to have to do the job oneself. Especially in these circumstances. It is beautiful here. What a lovely world, really. It is beautiful here. And I am alone. Thank God for peace at last. When the sun finally set around 8.30 p.m., Alma smoked one last cigarette. As she did so, a man named William Mitchell happened to be walking across a nearby field. From a distance away, he saw Alma remove her hat and coat, then fall into the river. William ran towards her, but by the time he reached the water, Alma was already floating away from the shore. William couldn't swim, and Alma wasn't responding to his cries. The water around her filled with blood. After William ran to fetch help, it was too late. Authorities recovered Alma's body and found six self-inflicted stab wounds. Tragically, Alma's death became a great irony. George Stoner's execution was continually postponed, and rather than face the gallows, he was released from prison in 1942 to serve in the Second World War. After the fighting ended, he retained his freedom. He went on to marry and live a relatively normal life until his death in the year 2000 at the age of 83. In an interesting coincidence, George passed away on March 24th, the same day that he attacked Francis Rattenbury in 1935. If Alma had known George would live, it's likely she wouldn't have taken her own life. In this way, her death was a senseless tragedy. And perhaps worst of all, it left her son an orphan. John Rattenbury was just six years old when his father was murdered and his mother died by suicide. He grew up painfully aware of the disaster that destroyed his home. Still, John found a way to move forward. He followed in Francis's footsteps and became an architect. His talent matched his father's, and eventually he moved to America and worked as an apprentice under Frank Lloyd Wright. Today, John Rattenbury is notable not for his parents' tragic deaths, but for his own contributions to architectural art. If nothing else, he managed to build something beautiful out of the ruins George Stoner left behind. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Francis Rattenbury, among the many sources we used, we found The Fatal Passion of Alma Rattenbury by Sean O'Connor, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. 
This episode of Solve Murders was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Eddie Lee, Laura Faye Smith, Dan Velasquez, and Jen Wong. Solve Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 